Hello, thank you for joining us. We are proud to welcome you to our special series, War and Peace, brought to you by Brill, where we talk about the constantly changing security situation in the world and the need for stronger institutions for maintaining global peace and justice. I'm your host, Lee Jung Greco. Today we're speaking with Majid Nakui. He has his doctorate from Iranian National University and is an SJD candidate at the University of Toronto. And we're speaking with Masoud Zamani. He's an assistant professor of international law at Law and Political Sciences faculty at Shiraz University in Iran. Their article is The Secession of Crimea, Where Does International Law Stand? Welcome to you both. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, Glad to be here. Glad to start off this conversation. Um, First of all, Majid, can you tell us what is the right to self-determination? And did Crimea enjoy this right before 2014? Okay, Uh, just to warm up, I would like to start by saying that the self-determination is one of the most misunderstood, if not misused, terms in international law and politics. And it is partly because self-determination is a multi-dimensional concept. It has sociopolitical, economic, internal, and external aspects. And to be able to understand this concept, we should distinguish between the internal and external aspects of this right. I would like to start with the internal aspect. Generally, internal self-determination is defined as the right of a people to develop itself socially, economically, and culturally within a state. Uh, Internal self-determination can take different forms and levels. I have identified three different levels. At the first level, self-determination, internal self-determination can be formulated in a very weak sense, which is respecting the rights of a specific group or specifically respecting their collective rights as minority. In the second level, internal self-determination means the right to self-government. This is perhaps the most obvious sense of internal self-determination because it implies that the people has political control over its own institutions and within the encompassing state. But in the third level, which is the highest level of internal self-determination, this right means a right to have a special constitutional status And for instance, a special asymmetric constitutional arrangement that could be designed to meet the specific demands of the people. In this sense, uh, the right to self-determination means the right of the people to have their own territorial autonomy within the state. So having a territorial autonomy within the state is the highest level of internal self-determination. Now let me move on to the external self-determination. The other side of this spectrum of self-determination, we have the external self-determination, which refers to full legal independence for the given people from the larger political legal state. 
External self-determination can mean that people have the right to determine their own political status and to be free from alien domination, which includes the right to own a sovereign state. The right to external self-determination can apply to a population which already owns a sovereign state, but it also can be applied to peoples that do not yet have an estate. And this part is very controversial because the right to form a state obviously violates the territorial integrity of the encompassing state. In large part, the external self-determination has been interpreted as the right of all colonial territories to become independent or to adopt any other status that they want. And this is an interpretation of external self-determination, which is mainly accepted by the international law. But outside of the colonial status, other people do not have the right to separate themselves from the people of the territory as the whole, from the people of their own state. Let me put all this debate in the context of Crimea. Looking to the Crimea from this perspective, I would say that Crimean enjoyed a high level of internal self-determination back in, 2000, in 2014. They had territorial autonomy and such autonomy was recognized in the constitution of Ukraine. They had their own government and assembly and in fact, they enjoyed self-government. So you talked about uh, Crimea and uh, the right to self-determination, but um, looking at that, can the right to self-determination be interpreted as a right to secession? Well, this is a very interesting question. I'm glad that you brought it up. Uh, This question is exactly related to what happened in the annexation of Crimea by Russia in 2014. And this story is almost the same in most of the cases. A group of people hold a referendum on whether they want to be an independent state or part of another state. Then, based on the result of the referendum, the group declares is independence. Let me connect the dots to the Russian invasion of Ukraine in 2022. We won't be surprised if sooner or later, Russians hold a referendum in eastern parts of Ukraine with options like if the people want to be part of Russia. My focus here, I would like to just narrow down my debate, and my focus here is in the legality of external self-determination or secession in terms of the declaration of independence. In mid-March of 2014, the Constitutional Court of Ukraine recognized that the citizen have the right to participate in a referendum. But at the same time, the Constitutional Court of Ukraine announced that the declaration of independence is unconstitutional. The court ruled that the territorial demarcation of Ukraine shall exclusively be determined by the laws of Ukraine. And we can see the same ruling is endorsed in other similar cases. For example, in the so-called case of Tataristan in 1992, which was decided by the Constitutional Court of Russia, and also in, in a case 
known as Reference Re-Secession of Quebec, decided by the Supreme Court of Canada in, back in 1998, both courts set similar limits on external self-determination. In both of these cases, the courts invoked in the international law and ruled that international documents do not allow self-determination to be invoked to endanger the territorial integrity of the states. In fact, they both agreed that democracy has a key limitation in terms of territorial integrity. And why I chose uh, these two cases, these two cases are very important. First of all, because the, one of these uh, decisions is taken by the Constitutional Court of Russia, the same Russia that welcomed the result of the referendum in Crimea and conducted a military operation. So we can see the conflict uh, between Russian behavior in the case of Tatarstan, when part of its own territory announced declaration, and when it helped Crimea and operated a military operation, conducted a military operation to help them to be annexed to parts of Russia. And secondly, we can see one of these cases is coming from Canada and the other one is from Russia. We can see that these two cases are from totally different legal cultures. Supreme Court of Canada upholds Western values while the Russia upholds a different set of values. And the, this diversity shows that the limitation on the right to self-determination is an imperative in comparative constitutional law. However, in both of these cases, the case of Tataristan by Russia and the case of Quebec by the Supreme Court of Canada, it was announced that there is an exception in this context. And the exception is when there is a flagrant violation of human rights of a specific population. In this context, unilateral cessation is justified. So let me wrap up my response. I would say since the Crimean did enjoy a high level of internal self-determination, and since there was no flagrant violation of human rights in that territory, the announcement of independence and the annexation to Russia was a clear violation of international law and the law of Ukraine. Okay, so with that background, let's turn now to what's happening in Ukraine today. Um, Masood, can you explain for us how does the 2014 invasion factor into the 2022 military operations in Ukraine right now? Yes, and it's very interesting you mentioned that because it seems that the world has forgotten that the 22 invasion of Ukraine by Russia is a continuation of what happened in 2014. Uh, even in the legal debates, we see that legal scholars, many of them tend to distinguish between this conflict and the one that happened in 2014. And uh, to some extent, there is even this argument amongst international uh, international lawyers that to what extent Ukraine has a right to defend itself in 2022. Whereas uh, this uh, entire military 
scenery uh, started in 2014. Uh, and we must view the ongoing conflicts now as um, the leftover of the conflict in 2014. And some international relations experts would say that uh, the plan that is unfolding now in Ukraine is the initial plan that existed in 2014. But back then, the whole uh, Russian apparatus, for some reasons, decided not to proceed uh, with the invasion. Uh, and basically, the plan was held until February 2022. So if we put it in that uh, context, then uh, we say that uh, we see that uh, many of the features that are now unraveling in uh, 2022 are to a great degree evocative of what happened to in, in 2014. Uh, we shouldn't forget that in March 2014, when uh, the uh, Russian-held military forces occupied Crimea, and the whole political scenery and landscape changed, uh, the whole situation happened at the request of the then president of Ukraine, um, Mr. Yanukovych. Mr. Yanukovych sent a letter, uh, a letter of invitation uh, to intervene uh, to Russia. And Russia took the opportunity and sent troops over which it exercised effective control. So in terms of the laws of responsibility. So, and that category in international law is known as intervention by invitation. When a president or the head of government uh, invites a foreign state to intervene militarily in order to restore and restructure the political balance. Uh, that category is more or less accepted as a legal uh, exercise in international law. Uh, many legitimate governments resort to intervention by invitation in order to restore the last balance or in order to prevent uh, the uh, undue influence of foreign governments, but it's accepted condition that two conditions are met. There are two prerequisites for uh, the legality of intervention by invitation. And the first prerequisite is that um, uh, invitation must be submitted by a government that represent the people. Mr. Yanukovych in 2014 did not meet this uh, prerequisite. Uh, and the second condition is that the head of the executive, which extends the letter of invitation to a foreign government, exercises effective control over the treaties in which, effect, uh, in which military operation uh, is supposed to take place. In 2014, these uh, conditions were totally absent from the political and legal landscape. And again, in February 22, uh, President Putin invoked the invitation of 
the government of Donbas uh, to uh, invade Ukraine. And I just want to touch on something that you said that was very interesting talking about what is happening now is just the leftovers from 2014. Um, and can you just elaborate a bit on, um, I guess, do you understand the strategy behind why Putin um, decided not to proceed with the larger invasion of Ukraine until February of 2022? Um, you know, why didn't he strike immediately following uh, Crimea? Uh, this is a question that is mostly discussed in international relations, but uh, there are many interesting reasons that actually make sense to understand the particular behavior of Russia in 2014. Uh, when uh, the uh, annexation of Crimea happened in 2014, there were immediate uh, sanctions imposed by the European governments. And although those sanctions uh, were not uh, very effective, they had this psychological effect of creating uh, economic unease in Russia. Uh, we shall not forget that the Russia today is not that the Russian environment and economic growth today is not the one that we could see before 2014. So it, those sanctions created the impression that there might be immediate um, backlash. And I think uh, the uh, think tanks in, in Russia and those advising Putin uh, in Russia warned him against proceeding with, uh, with the invasion. And I think he personally decided not to go ahead in 2014 further. But there was this larger plan. So we do not proceed with the invasion in 2014, but we come and put the effects of sanctions on trial and uh, we buy time. The intelligence reports coming today, coming out today, indicate that there was this understanding within the uh, Western intelligence sector that Russia will invade Ukraine. Uh, they were waiting for it, but it's astonishing that they were not prepared to take any appropriate uh, uh, to, to take any appropriate measure when, when it happened. I mean, um, to some extent, uh, the invasion in 2022 point uh, to the lack of good intelligence on the part of the Western intelligence uh, services. So, um, again, looking at the precedent that this set up, um, what kind of precedent did the military intervention uh, in Crimea set up for what's happening today? Uh, in international law and international relations, we have this term of uh, strategies chain reactions. And by that, it is meant that the particular strategies adopted by superpowers mainly tend to create a larger influence in the entire world. So uh, it's interesting because if we look at the speech 
made by uh, President Putin on the 24th of February 2022, we see that he refers to the precedents established by um, his Western counterparts in Syria, Afghanistan, Libya. Uh, these are the uh, and uh, and um, Ukraine itself. Uh, these are the examples that Putin gives on the 21st of February to justify his military action. And uh, it's very interesting because it is obvious that he understands that those measures have not been, strictly speaking, legal in terms of international law. And the rationale that he employs is that our Western colleagues did it, so uh, could we. So even within the very inner circles of the Russian government, uh, it is totally um, apparent that uh, they understand the measures that they have taken in Ukraine do not meet legal conditions. But when a superpower uh, as big as Russia takes that decision, he makes an example uh, for other states which can be uh, fighting similar wars uh, in an allied political bloc. It sets an example for uh, Uganda. It sets an example for Iran. It sets an example for other countries which hold close political ties with Russia. And uh, not only allies, but only among, but also amongst foes and enemies, that example is going to operate um, as an unwelcome one because uh, the uh, core message is that we can do anything we want to do and we can get away with it. Uh, so the precedent is going to be especially a nasty one in international law, but uh, in terms of uh, international relations, but in terms of law, uh, of course, an, an illegal act cannot set a president and shall not set a president. Yeah, I'm wondering if uh, either of you could maybe touch on how that would set precedent in Iran. Um, just, you know, give me kind of your view from on the ground, um, how that would play out. Iran is a less serious example in, in, in this regard. I, I, I briefly touched on it because right now Iran is not in conflict with uh, any of its uh, neighbors. I mean, there are disagreements and political crises, but they do not meet the threshold of conflict. The more serious concern is China and the rising political tensions between China and Taiwan and uh, the military arsenal that the Chinese are building around Taiwan. Uh, and uh, that conflict is particularly dangerous because the proximity of American troops uh, on the neighboring waters of China is very serious. Uh, so uh, the, the proximity of those troops to, to the Chinese troops are, are very close. And that conflict actually 
lead, can lead to a catastrophe uh, on the seas. And uh, that must be considered, in my opinion, as a more serious concern uh, compared to the situation in the Middle East. That's very interesting. And I should note, uh, that's a conflict that is heating up a bit. Uh, Majid, uh, anything else that you'd like to add on this, especially when it comes to um, how the precedent set in Crimea might apply, uh, not just to Ukraine, uh, but some of these other countries? Uh, yes, I would say that uh, while the Crimean conflict uh, uh, was uh, b- back in uh, 2014, Iranian country just uh, decided not to um, take um, any position in favor of the annexation. And it is partly because Iran is a kind of multicultural, multinational country. You know, we have uh, different, in every part of the country, there are different um ethnic and religious minorities. So, and I think it was a wise decision. Although the, probably, although the uh, uh, Iran was, Iran is an ally of Russia, at the the time it decided not to support that annexation because it it would set a precedent for Iran and its territorial integrity in future. That's Majid Nakui and Masoud Zamani. Their article is The Secession of Crimea, Where Does International Law Stand? Thank you again to you both. Thank you for your invitation. Thank you. Thanks for having us. You are listening to the Humanities Matter podcast. You can find more podcast episodes on Apple Podcast, Spotify, and Google Podcasts.